are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are The Addiction Doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. We are doing our addiction update and we have so many things to talk about tonight. As we've been kicking off season three, we just want to start by getting to know our hosts a little bit better. It's a little bit more because I know you pretty well. Tell our audience, why do you do what you do? Well, that that's a long story, but the short story is in medicine, I cannot think of anything more fun, more satisfying. And I just feel honored to be working in the field of addiction medicine. It's a field where people really have to, they just work hard to transform their lives. Addiction is so hard. It's just, I'd never wish it on anybody. I fell into harm reduction work when I was an undergraduate, mostly handing out condoms at frat parties, which was really fun. Um, and I learned a lot about uh, so there's drinking. more of a story there, Paula. How did you get into that? <laughs> well, that's, you know, I just, it was kind of like a volunteer thing, but I ended up just really loving it. And then in medical school, I really liked working with people experiencing homelessness. And of course, substance use is really prevalent in that population. And I, it just struck me that people who have significant substance use and all the physical and social and mental sequelae from it just suffer in all of those paradigms and the society, I just didn't really think we do enough. And not that I'm some kind of a savior that could come in and do more, but I'm just like, this is fascinating. Why aren't, Why don't we care more about this? That really stemmed from seeing a patient when I was a third year medical student at, at the homeless clinic who was just covered in abscesses. She was muscling heroin. And I just was like, why, what? Why have I not heard about person like this in the first two years of medical school? Why wasn't this a topic of conversation? And then in residency, I mean, you know, you and I both know because we went to the same residency, just got really involved in volunteering and different things and methadone clinic and then treating patients. And it's just evolved from there. And I, I can't imagine my career in any other place than right here. What about you? Honestly, I don't think I had well, I had exposure. We all did. Saw patients and treated many patients with substance use disorders through medical school. Probably some negative experiences or maybe modeled in a negative way. And I think we had very little training in medical school. I think we were really lucky in our residency program where it was modeled for us family medicine and addiction medicine combined. And that's where my exposure came. And I had that moment, and this was probably towards the end of my first year And that's really when it was like this complete shift for me. We had a really just what you would call a difficult patient on our inpatient service. And there was a lot of medical and psychosocial issues with this patient. The nurses were calling all the time because this patient was challenging for them. Remember where we were and we were doing report. The only, we go through the whole thing and it was me and the senior resident at the time. Everyone, you could just tell the frustration as we were going through that. And the only response from our attending who was really very wise was just like, your problem is you don't have the education or the training to treat the patient's real problem, which was addiction. And I was just kind of like, you know, you're right. You're right. And I realized like early on, you can eat. I I was like, I can go for the next, you know, 40 years of my career and fight this, or I can get the training. 
that's really where I started down on that path. And I was like, okay, so teach me. I love it. It was interesting because it's an uphill battle and it really was. And I know you faced a lot of the same things that I did too, Paula, because when we started, I mean, I don't feel like we're that old, but I feel like we are sometimes older, even practicing addiction medicine, the kind of early 2000s, mid 2000s, when we were finishing up residency and starting our practice. Even when I was interviewing for jobs, you would think, okay, if you have somebody who's family medicine, addiction medicine trained, and we were in the process of being double boarded in addiction medicine, you know, you would think that would be an asset. Well, I had jobs that that was actually a negative and they did not want to hire you. And I had them, I had actually an interview tell me, we do not want that in our practice. And there was a lot of physicians I know that face those same stigmas. I laugh at it now and I think I'm like, you have that in your practice. You're just choosing not to treat patients appropriately. That's something you had to face. Even with my first job, I remember getting there and it, same thing. It was that kind of uphill battle. I had to buy out of my own pocket drug screens before my patients, because back then, in order to get their buprenorphine naloxone approved with insurance companies, you had to have urine drug screens on that first time they came in. Otherwise, they would not be able to get their medicine authorized. And you had to have prior, every patient had to have a prior authorization for their medicine. I was an employed physician at the time. They were just like, no, we're not going to do. And I'm like, you're in drug screens. <laughs> like, that wasn't something that they ordered. And it it's took amazing. a while for me to kind of change that culture of like, you have other prescribers in the same practice in this group that I'm joining. And they're they're writing opiates like it's going out of style. And why are you not drug screening those? Like that's just, this should be standard practice. It's no di- different. You need to be ordering these. And it just takes a while to change that culture. I mean, those were some of the barriers that we faced. And I know you have yours. Oh, no, that's good. That's really interesting. I'm, I'm really interested in how you got into it. I mean, and it's been a long time. I think we've both been, well, not relative to folks like Dr. Howell, but practicing addiction medicine and learning, continuing to learn and watch it evolve for quite a long time now. And I was just reflecting just shout out for a second. I just moved to a rural area. It's the first time I've moved away. I moved to the US in 1991. And I've pretty much been in the same big city since then until this week moved to a rural area to take a really exciting position an addiction medicine position. It's just struck me all week like this program down here is incredible. And it's been run by an amazing addiction psychiatrist. I'm kind of assuming the role with more of an addiction medicine focus, obviously, but I'm just amazed because there's like, oh, and here are our harm reduction bags that include cookers and naloxone. And here is our policy on, you know, the methadone clinic. And I'm like, we have come so far. 10 years, it's we've come so far. I mean, that's, I think that's what's so inspiring. Harm reduction was not really even a thing in our area. (laughs) Right. And access to treatment, you know, like now we emergency rooms give buprenorphine and that's really cool. So we both kind of fell into addiction because of this. It's interesting and we found a need, but what about, tell me a little bit about you personally. We'll just do a quick, like three minute. What about you? Like, who are you? Where are you from? What's your, what's your story? Well, I mean, I think people figured out because I mentioned all the time that we're in the U.S. and we're the Intermountain West. And I grew up mostly in this area. I had I do not have as an exotic background as Paula. I have with medical school in my training, I have been on the East Coast and then settled back here. 
with my family because we love the outdoors. And I have my family's pretty small. I've got a husband and I've got one adult daughter in college. That's pretty much me. Nice. And we find you on the weekends in the following places, A, B, and C. Okay. You will find me when I can up in the mountains, hopefully kayaking in the summer or riding my bike or hiking. Those are my favorite. This is why we live where we live, right, Paula? Because we love the mountains. And I'm just going to boast about you because I think you're such a remarkable human and physician and you do a lot of advocacy. You just do a lot of legislation and advocacy. So you do a lot for our community and you're an amazing physician. You're in private practice and for you do family medicine and addiction medicine in the outpatient setting, right? Okay. Your turn, Paula. What's your bio? Well, my bio is super quickly. I grew up in Zimbabwe. I was very lucky to grow up in that country. Very beautiful, really interesting time. A lot of political strife. And But I lived there till I was 18. My family is Irish, though. So I go home to Ireland. And I have a lot of family in Ireland still. And I am lucky to have some siblings here in the United States. I came to the United States to go to, to, go to school. And I fully intended on just going to school and then leaving. And now I, I'm here like 30 years later. I'm still here. I have an amazing family. I'm married and I have four kids. They're all kind of grown up now. And my youngest just started college a year ago. And then I have three grandbabies, which is, they're just amazing. And yeah, really lucky to live in the state I live in. And I love, I love all things outdoors as well. And I'm kind of a sports enthusiast, not watching sports, but participating. So that's, that's kind of what takes up the rest of my time besides work and podcasting and family. Now I, this is where I have to go with Paula. Like when when Paula says like sports enthusiast, you have to understand like how many Ironmans have you completed? Uh, and world, we're talking also <laughs> she's competed in world championship Ironmans and done very well. Well, I don't know about that. I finished. That was the main thing. I've done five, five full Ironman competitions, which it may not be a tribute to me. It may just be a tribute to my desperation and mental health. <laughs> and she just finished the John Muir Trail, 250 two miles or four miles yeah we did we did the John Muir Trail plus because the John Muir Trail is 211 miles but we had to access it below the start of the trail so we backpacked that it was like a bucket list thing that we did just did it this summer we were on sabbatical in the eastern Sierras and I have to say it was kind of a life-changing experience I would recommend anyone in medicine or in the world in general if you have the opportunity to get fully immersed in nature for a long period of time with only a few items and with a couple of people you really love it does a lot I only got to just witness it from the pictures but it was amazing well and thanks. what else okay. like you've done numerous bike races we got to talk a little bit more about this Pollock oh no we're good like I've just it's just any Anything outside, basically, I love that doesn't involve a ball. But yeah, the main thing we've gotten into in Utah, my husband started it and I've kind of followed him as ultra running. So we're really excited because he is going to participate in a very long ultra coming up in October. So he's getting ready for that. And so I'm helping him going to help him pace that race. So yeah, that's it. That, that's some, what I love. And in the meantime, like you love kayaking, biking. I really love just being outside, hiking, biking. And lately I've found a real passion for yoga. So I'm in that kind of more meditative period as well. As Paula states it, like exercise is her love language. If you want to spend time with her, you have to just do some kind of movement. And <laughs> we both love our outside time. Like that's, that's the therapy. I am nowhere near Paula's level 
We just, I'm going to put that out there. <laughs> There's no level in nature. You just go outside and you get green exercise. I'm a sightseer. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I I go out there when I wander, but I love it. I love it. That's good for you. Moving on. Yeah, we're so excited for this podcast because like Darlene said, we are now in year three. This is so exciting. Yeah. Um, We've been really active on social media. If all of you are on Twitter or Instagram, especially Twitter, like this is it. We're in our third year. This is grassroots podcasting. Darlene does all the editing. When we say, what is, where can we find Darlene? I should have said a editing the podcast (laughs) because she does all of our editing. We get no money from anybody. We do this all on our own time. And we have the most incredible guests, which a lot of you who have listened to us before are fully aware. So, and we have a great lineup for year three. We are so excited. We have amazing guests. We have incredible topics. We really want you to reach out to us. If you have questions, addiction medicine related, we would be really happy to try and address them on the podcast. Let us know. Please talk to us on Twitter or Instagram. We also have an email. Today, we're discussing some really important updates in addiction medicine and some recent papers that are important. So Darlene, what did you, what did, where should we go today? Let's just talk about NIDA has given some updates. There's been, they just released kind of their current trends on several of our common drugs of abuse. Where are we with cannabis, the hallucinogens, vaping, nicotine, alcohol? Those are things we see every day. And let's just talk about what our patients are using, how often, and where that's going, because these trends are interesting. And I think it's good to always just kind of keep up on them. Those are always favorite board questions as well. Exactly. So this is really fascinating. I have been geeking out about this ever since this announcement was made by NIDA. They announced it on August 22nd, basically a review, a news release on the Monitoring the Future study. So they looked at the data from 2021. And those of us who are in healthcare, those of us who are in law enforcement, what we are seeing and what they're reporting are the same. So this is the big thing. This is like beep, beep. Marijuana and hallucinogen use in the past year in young adults. So they define young adults as 19 to 30 year old increased significantly in 2021 compared to the previous 10 years. Okay, that's no surprise. It, however, has reached a historic high. So never been this high before since 1988. We're seeing there's actually a report that we're now seeing cannabis use exceed nicotine use, which is incredible. However, rates of nicotine vaping have continued a general upward trend in 2021, even though they had leveled off in 2020. So we kind of see this general trend where things in 2020 had begun to level out for a lot of substances. Nicotine had leveled out, alcohol was actually decreasing, hallucinogen had not spiked yet, and then COVID hit and then everything has changed. And then of course, there's been a lot of things that have changed the use of substances too, like the legalization of marijuana in multiple states. Marijuana and hallucinogen use have really Really increased. There's a really nice graph. If you go to the NIDA website and you read the news release, it's called Marijuana and Hallucinogen Use Among Young Adults Reached All-Time High in 2021. And it was released on August 22nd of this year. There's a graphic that shows 13% increase in marijuana use in this age group 2011 to 2021 and a 4.7% increase in hallucinogen use from 2011 
2021. So I think that's really fascinating. And when we look at what's going on with hallucinogen use, I mean, this is really interesting, Darlene. And I think we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg. We're only beginning to see the beginning, but we're seeing a dramatic increase in hallucinogen use, right? Now, I haven't seen this for decades, but in 2021, 8% of young adults reported past year hallucinogen use, reporting an all-time high since anyone was ever surveyed. Monitoring the Future study has been around since 1988. The whole time, we've never seen anything like this. In terms of if you're a healthcare worker or whatever, let's be aware of what this means. What about the types of hallucinogens that participants are using? I found this really interesting. Give me a guess, Darlene. What do you think? What are the top? Give me top three. And if you get them wrong, it's okay. Well, it's hard because patients will say mushrooms. They call everything shrooms. That's true. So <laughs> that's definitely in the top. You, you see psilocybin and you see peyote and you see LSD. You got it. You dig. Well, see you. This is why you're the expert. You're exactly right. LSD, mescaline, peyote, mushrooms, or psilocybin. Also, PCP has been increasing, which this is really scary. In fact, we need to do an episode on PCP. I think it's time. Only there was one hallucinogen measured that actually significantly decreased, which I thought was fascinating. I wouldn't have guessed this, but I guess maybe from clinical use, from clinical experience, I could have guessed this, and that's MDMA. So we're not seeing as much ecstasy or molly use. Instead, we're seeing this steep, steep incline of LSD and especially psilocybin. There's a lot of interest in psilocybin. We are going to talk about marijuana and the, excuse me, cannabis use in regards to a very important paper that was published recently. Darlene's going to talk about that, but I'll quickly just talk about the monitoring the future data from 2021. And I think it's fascinating. So past year, past month and daily marijuana use. So that's use, that's defined as use on 20 or more occasions in the past 30 days has reached the highest levels ever recorded as well. Highest levels ever for marijuana. And now I'm going to, this is, I'm just quizzing you. And I think this is really fun. I quizzed my husband in the car today and I said, what proportion of young adults reported past year marijuana use in the US? He guessed half of the actual number. What do you think it is? It's almost 50%. Yeah. You're dead right. It's 40. Yeah. 43% for 2021. I mean, that's a lot. I mean, it's just so common. I just was in Colorado this weekend. <laughs> it definitely felt like more than 40 It was more than that, I'm sure. <laughs> 43% in 2021. I'd say our guess would be it's going to be more in 2022. What do you think? Oh, yes. Oh, it's, yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, that's what they're showing is it's, it's increasing every year. We're just seeing this gradual increase because it, you see this trend as you see the perception of harm. And now that it's this perception, the public perception that there's very little risk and harm, then use is going up. And unfortunately, that's what we're seeing. Exactly. So, you know, there we go. That's the data from that NIDA made a news release on marijuana, or they, they call it marijuana still. We In addiction medicine, we refer to it as cannabis. Cannabis and hallucinogen on the rise, especially LSD and psilocybin. If you are interested, especially in hallucinogens, we have an episode on club drugs in season two. It's episode 21 stimulants or opioids, but there's one drug that continues to be the most 
most used substance amongst adults in this country and indeed the world. And you're going to talk about it, Darlene, what the data shows. Oh, yes. And I'm sure you've all guessed it. That is alcohol. And we've talked about this before several times, but it remains, like Paula said, it's the most used substance among adults in the study. They went through past year, past month, and daily drinking. And they said daily drinking had been decreasing over the past decade. Binge drinking, and that's defined as five or more drinks in a row in the past two weeks, that rebounded from a historic low in 2020, rebounded up in 2021. So, and we know that's related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Then we there's this new term, which we talked about, and this was in our season two, episode 35, we went into more detail, but what we call high intensity drinking is this new trend. I mean, when we have to come up with these terms, there this is really disturbing, but that's having 10 or more drinks in a row. That's been steadily increasing and reached a highest level ever recorded since we this was the started being a measurement in 2005. So that reached its highest level in 2021. That, I mean, that's yeah, really it's disturbing. Amazing. It's disturbing. And we're seeing it like the hospitals. Yes. Those of you in hospital-based medicine, I know you're nodding your head and you're going, yes, yes, yes. Because you all, whether you work in med surge, trauma, the emergency room, you're you're just having people in with alcohol-related um, harms or alcohol withdrawal syndrome like crazy. I know you are. And those of you who work in mental health or addiction medicine, or in any other realm in the world, you're seeing it and the volumes have gone up. Like what used to be a fifth a day is now a handle a day. And we we could go on and on about this. I, oh, yes. I blame seltzers. <laughs> we could have a whole seltzer discussion again. We already <laughs> did. I had these damn seltzers. Anyway, that's my soapbox. So it's I have so many stories about that. Well, we have some really good episodes on alcohol right? We have in season two, episode 35, just a fairly recent episode. Yes. So that's our most recent on alcohol use disorders. And then our first episodes, episodes one, two, and three, we go through identifying medications and treatment inpatient and outpatient. And we'll probably do more because prevalence is so high. Okay. Well, that was good. I Don't you love those updates? They make me kind of excited. I don't That's see where- What's new in the world of cannabis? We honestly could do this every week. There's so much research and so many papers coming out. And Paula's really good about getting those tweets out there. So if you're following us on Twitter, you'll get those. We're post, We're trying to post something probably, it is probably every week. Make sure you're following us and we'll keep you up to date. But there was a really interesting paper just came out. And this talks about the long-term cannabis use. What is it doing to our brains? And this was from the American Journal of Psychiatry. So this was a review of the paper that was published in March, on March 8th, 2022. And this is Meyer et al. This is a New Zealand study and they took midlife. They're talking people born 1972, 1973, followed to age 45. And they had 94% retention. They had cannabis use dependents were assessed at ages 18, 21, 20. 26, 32, 38, and 45. IQ was assessed at ages 7, 9, 11, and 45. And then they did neuropsychological function and hippocampal volumes were assessed at age 45. That general methods of the study, if that makes sense. The key findings about this that was really interesting is those who consistently used cannabis had a mean IQ decline of about five and a half points at midlife. Long-term cannabis users had smaller 
hippocampal volumes. And that was particularly of interest to the authors because of its link with dementia. And as if we remember back to medical school, the hippocampus is what's involved in memory and learning. And that's Mm -hmm. why is the hippocampus affected in the first place? Because that's where you have your big concentration of our Mm -hmm. cannabinoid receptors. I love it. That's such an interesting study. And it's, you know, there have been some studies before that have tried to estimate IQ loss with chronic cannabis use. This is just really strong study. Again, NIDA, our kind of favorite go-to reference point, they talk about cannabis memory and the hippocampus and how cannabis affects the aging brain, which I think is interesting. And, you know, I have an interest in integrative medicine and a lot of people are very worried about holding on to their cognition and what can they do. But as people age, just as part of the aging process, you lose hippocampal neurons, which means you lose the ability to learn new information. And like you were saying, this is where we have a high population of cannabinoid receptors and chronic cannabis use affects the ability to learn information. So does aging. So chronic THC and cannabis exposure hastens the age-related loss of hippocampal neurons. That's according to NIDA. That makes sense, right? And they've done a lot of animal studies and they looked at one study where they exposed rats to THC from cannabis every day for eight months, which is about 30% of their lifespan. And they showed showed a nerve cell loss at 11 to 12 months of age that equaled that of unexposed animals twice their age. In terms of just aging and that ability to learn and keep your cognitive faculties, and that's how you were saying they're looking at its relationship to dementia. I think that's really interesting. And we, as family medicine physicians, not even anything to do with addiction medicine, how is this going to affect our aging population who 43% of them are using cannabis, right? According to the study, adults in the US. I mean, we're seeing a lot of cannabis use by the older population as well as the young population. So we're going to see more cognitive decline as people lose that ability to um, retain and make new information and retain the ability to, to learn. The important thing to counsel our patients on. And one other finding that I just want to mention, because I think this is really important when we, as just as a comparison, another thing that their Dr. Meyer and her team found was with the long-term cannabis users compared to those who didn't use, they did another comparison with long-term tobacco use and long-term alcohol use. They found that their neurophysiological functions with even adjusted scoring with that were worse for the cannabis uses versus tobacco use and alcohol use. Both of those, which is interesting because we've known for a long time that long-term tobacco use and alcohol use do impact cognitive function over time, more where we look at some vascular effects from that. But it's interesting that the cannabis use had even more of an effect on memory and learning. Yeah, especially in long-term alcohol use, we know that's really detrimental to brain health. Um, And so is tobacco use. So yeah, the adjusted mean score being that much worse for cannabis use. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. Yeah. So that is just some quick updates on what's going on in the world of addiction right now. And stay tuned. We've got more things coming. All right. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and we're actually on Facebook if you are a good old Facebook person. And our our Twitter name is The Addiction Files. That's where you can find us. Similarly on Instagram, we are The Addiction Files one. That's where you can find us on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time. 
Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.